Good morning. Please turn to Romans chapter 12. We continue in Romans chapter 12 this morning. Uh, Last week, we talked about spiritual gifts and how you and I each have spiritual gifts, things God has given to us for the sake of His kingdom. Uh, We are responsible for using our spiritual gifts. Someone described last week's sermon as a gentle kick in the pants. I thought that was somewhat clever. Okay, but here was the point. Okay, just like your body needs all of its various parts to work properly, so too does the church need everyone's gifts if we are going to move forward as the kingdom of God. And that all sounds very great. Uh, It's all very idealistic. Okay, I love the thought that I'm going to use my gifts and you're going to use your gifts and your strength plus my strength empowered by the power of God's Holy Spirit. We're going to come together and do great things. We are going to come together and work together and be the body of Christ. The problem, however, comes when you have to start working with actual people. This is why whenever I was growing up in school, I always hated it when the teacher said, okay, we're going to have a group assignment now and you've got to get with a table full of people and do this group project. And it would be great if everyone did everything and saw the world the exact same way I did, but invariably there's different people with different ways of approaching group work, and I hated it. Okay? I just wanted to do my work, get my grade, and move on with my life. Okay? But group work is hard. All right, I read an article just the other day, and I wanted to share with you what they described in this article are the five kinds of difficult people Uh, that it seems like no matter what kind of group project you're assigned to do, there's always representatives from these five different kinds of people in the group that you get stuck with. All right? Okay, in the first place, you'll be in a group and there's the blatant slacker, right? In every group, there's somebody who wants to do nothing, right? In church, This is the person who loves that their church does so many things and is so active. They'll even tell their neighbor, oh, my church is involved in lots of different ministries. Okay, but their particular ministry is just to do nothing. Secondly, in group works, there's the well-meaning incompetent. This is like when my three-year-old wants to help fold the laundry. I appreciate your enthusiasm, son, but at the end of the day, you're just making this take longer. Okay, in church, this would be like if I volunteered to cook the Wednesday night meals. Right? I might be very enthusiastic about it. I might approach it with great gusto, but it would take about two weeks before some of you were pulling me aside and saying, okay, David, maybe your gifts lie elsewhere, right? All right, in third place, there's the fraud. Okay, this person is much more concerned with appearances, with accomplishments than actual work. Okay, in the church, this is the person who needs an official title to get their sense of pride. Okay, I remember when I was working with the church in Texas, there was this older man. Uh, he hadn't even been to church in a long time because his health was failing him. And we talked about, well, maybe he doesn't need to be listed as one of our deacons any longer because he hasn't done anything in years. But ultimately, we couldn't do that, can't take his name off the list, because his whole sense of who he was was wrapped up in that title. All right, next, there is the hyper-competitive peer. Okay, this is the person who only cares about their project, and they will do whatever they need to do to make sure that they get their thing done, even if it's at the expense 
of all the other things. Okay, I knew of a church once that had a VBS workday on the same day that Lads to Leaders was practicing. Okay, this is a tragic mistake in the scheduling calendar of things. Uh, ended up with the two leaders of these two different children's events getting into a serious fight with each other okay, because both of them knew their event, their ministry was what was really important. Like, that's great. We're going to teach kids how to be more like Jesus by arguing with each other. That's good. Okay. Final uh, person we end up working with, often in groups, is the aggravating boss. Okay, this one needs little explanation. Uh, years ago, I was part of a church in which there was a lady in charge of VBS, and every year she ran off all of the volunteers. Why? Because she couldn't handle being in charge of anything, right? Right. Any of you ever work with any of these people? Not here, obviously, but in your regular work? Okay. Right. Okay, there are certainly others we could add to our list this morning. If you've ever done group work, you've worked with people who were procrastinators or who were overachievers. Maybe they were overbearing. Maybe they were myopic or short-sighted. Maybe you've worked with slobs before. Maybe you've worked with someone who was ill-tempered. Okay, working with others always sounds great in theory. It sounds wonderful that we're all going to come together, pool our strength, pool our resources, and get this great thing done we never could do on our own. But then in practicality, when we actually get into a group and we realize that people are so different from each other and we've all got our issues, it makes group work difficult. Okay, so what do we do? How do we do this? I think it is no coincidence that right after Paul lays out spiritual gifts and he tells us we've got to use our gifts, you are a member of the body of Christ, you have to use your gift if the body's going to function properly, he then proceeds in the next several verses to talk about how to have relationships with each other. Okay, if we're going to come together and use our gifts, then we have to know how to get along, how to be in real relationship with our brothers and sisters. Okay, notice what he says starting in verse 9. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Okay, I won't parse through every word of this, but I want you to notice that there is some extremely practical advice in this for how we come together as very different people, but learn how to live and work with others. Okay, and before I get to my main points, which you've got space for on your bulletin if you're taking notes this morning, I've got two prequel points that we've got to get on the table first. All right, the first one of these is I think that the heading for this entire section of chapter 12 is that first phrase in verse 9. He says, love must be sincere. I think everything in the verses that follow is telling us how do we have a love that is sincere. Because at the end of the day, the only way that we can successfully have relationships with our brothers and sisters in the church necessary for us to work together as the body of Christ is we've got to start with this sincere, agape kind of love. Okay, that's number one. Okay, prequel point number two. I think our culture is desperate 
for this. I think most of us are searching for genuineness. We are searching for sincerity. Even if it's on a subconscious level, we know that we encounter so little sincere love in real life that most of what we actually spend our time doing is looking for genuine love. Okay, we watch TV and we know that it's all fake and scripted. In relationships, real love has often been exchanged for lust. We watch our politicians on TV and we know that they don't even believe most of what they say. We see everyone's social media feeds and we know that people are just showing us the parts of their lives that they want others to see. We filter our own selves to the world to the point that it lacks genuineness. And most of us now spend more time looking at screens than we do at real people. I think in our world, we are so starved for sincere love that for many people, if they saw a genuine example of real love, of a real relationship, it would shock them. I think if the church could understand how to just do the first part of verse 9 and have sincere love, we could do anything we wanted to do. All right, so how do we do this? How do we have this sincere love? How do we get together as the body of Christ? All right, number one, notice verse 10. He tells us to be a family. Okay, we as the church have to be a family. He says, be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. All right, I may have shared this with you before, I can't remember. Uh, but four months before my second birthday... My parents brought home a completely unnecessary little sister. Okay? I was, they didn't even ask for my vote in this. They just did it. Okay? I was the youngest. I was the prince. I wasn't even old enough to remember it before she showed up. All right, for the next 17 years or so, we proceeded to torture each other. And just to clarify, she had it coming. Uh, I was always the victim. I'm saying it from the pulpit, so it must be true, right? All right, in that time, uh, we didn't always like each other. We fought a lot. Numerous times, my parents sat us down and explained to us that certain things would not be tolerated. Okay, for instance, in my house growing up, we couldn't commit assault and battery, right? We couldn't commit homicide. They told us there are certain rules that will govern your behavior with one another. Uh, we both got in lots of trouble because of the other one. Uh, to this day, I can still push her buttons better than anybody on the planet. All right? Now, recently, Rachel and I uh, finalized our wills so that if something should happen to us, Luke and Sam can be taken care of. Right? We figured that's important. We want to make sure our kids are well cared for. Now, guess who we decided would raise our children if Rachel and I unexpectedly died? My little sister. Okay, when she had a scare recently, uh, she recently had a newborn baby, and they had a little scare that something might be wrong with the baby, and so they had to do some testing and get the test results back, found out everything's perfectly fine with the baby. Uh, who was one of the first people that she texted? Me. Why? Okay, because when it really matters, who do you rely on? Your family. All right, in Greek... Uh, there are several different words used for love. If you read through your New Testament, they just translate the word love a bunch of times, but there's four primary words in Greek that get translated as the word love. 
right? There is agape love, which is the word he uses in verse 9. You've probably heard preachers before talk about how agape love is that big kind of catch-all type of love. Okay, there's also a word for love that exists between friends, just a more what we would call friendship. Uh, there's also a word for sexual love, from which we get the word erotic. Uh, there's also a word for love, though, that describes the kind of love that exists in a family. It's family love. It's the word Philadelphia, okay, from which we name the city in America, right? Literally, what it means is brother and sister love, the love that exists between siblings. In verse 10, Paul uses that kind of love, telling us as the church how we are supposed to love each other. It's literally love each other as brothers and sisters. Okay? In other words, our church is supposed to love each other like a family. Okay? I don't always like my sisters, but I always love them. Okay? I fought with them sometimes. But it never once entered my thought process that I would leave them or not have a relationship with them or not support them in the things that they were doing. Why? Because who comes first in your world? It's your family. If we love each other with that brother-sister love, then it makes it possible for us to come together and use our gifts together. Why? Because I choose to love you like my family. Okay, this isn't a feeling that he's describing. He's not saying, I want you to have a warm, fuzzy feeling for each other all the time. He's describing a choice that we make. So, have we decided that being part of the church means that I'm accepting the responsibility to love you like my family? Okay, if you're holding back, and you want to go to church, and you know that it's important to be a Christian, but you don't want to love the people around you like a family, then you need to repent and make different choices. The call of the church is the call for us to be a family together. You know, I've said it before, and, and in fact, I've said this several times as we've been recently interviewing youth ministers. Okay, but one of the reasons that I like this church is because I think we do this. I think we prioritize this family kind of love. Okay, you can find churches that have more ministries than we do. You know, as much as I hate to admit it, you can find churches with better preaching. Not better looking preachers, but better preaching. Yeah. You can certainly find bigger churches, more exciting churches, churches with a louder worship service. Yeah, there's a lot of things that if you're looking for that thing, you can find it better in a different church. Yeah, but I think you would be hard-pressed to find a church that cares about each other as much as we do. Yeah, and I'm real certain that if we're going to do one thing well, it should be this. All right, so be a family. Number two, he also tells us to be on fire. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. You know, when I was a little kid, uh, I remember dad got us a basketball and a basketball hoop. And this wasn't a Fisher-Price kind of thing. This was a regulation-sized basketball and the basketball hoop that goes with it. And I remember being very excited about this gift and deciding at that point that I was going to practice my basketball skills every day, right? I was going to practice diligently, and when I grew up, I was going to be like Mike, right? You remember those commercials? Can you remember the song, I want to be like Mike? That was the thing, right? I was going to grow up and be like Michael Jordan, Never mind that he's 10 inches taller than I am. That wasn't relevant, okay? I was going to be like Mike. I was going to play for the Bulls, and I was going to win 
championships. A little while later, I started playing baseball. I was passionate about it. I was devoted to it. I was going to play for the Braves, and I was going to win championships. Maybe I should have played for somebody different, but that's okay. Later, I caught a passion for tennis. I probably hit a thousand tennis balls against our garage door. Then for a while, I was going to be a swimmer. Then I was going to be an artist. Then I was going to be a cowboy. Then I thought, wouldn't it be cool if I could be a ninja? Right? I was passionate about that for a while. Hey, also in my growing up years, I fully planned on marrying Savannah, and then Claire, and then Laura, and then Amy. Then there was another Amy. Then there was Samantha. And there were a bunch of other crushes I can't remember. How many of you today have the same passions that you had when you were 10 or 12? (laughs) Don't, okay. Uh, How many of you, the things that you're passionate about today, all of the things that you really care about this morning are the same things that you cared about when you were 10 years old? Our passions wane. Part of the reality of growing up is that your passions are constantly changing as you learn more about who you are, as you learn what you're good at, as you learn what you like and what you don't like. Now, aren't you glad that as we become adults, we grow out of that? Okay, I looked it up this week. How many gym memberships do you think people are still using a year after they sign up and start paying monthly fees to be part of a gym? One out of five. All right? Four out of every five gym memberships start with someone who says, I'm going to work out every week, X number of times a week, and they're passionate about it and they fully intend on doing it, so much so that they put money at a gym saying, I'm going to be passionate about working out and this is what I'm going to do. And only one out of every five of those people is still doing it at the end of a year. Why? Because our passions wane. We get interested in other things. Our passion goes out. Unfortunately, what happens is that often we start with a great passion for God, and then over time, it fades. I mean, remember times back in your life when you were fully committed to God, and you made a resolution that nothing was ever going to keep you away from living your life for God. What happens over time? Life gets in the way. Things come up. Priorities change. Things shift. Paul says, if we are going to be the body of Christ, if we're going to use our gifts for his kingdom, we need to keep our passion. He says, never be lacking in zeal. How do we do that? How is it possible to exist in such a way that we are constantly passionate and zealous for God, keeping that spiritual fervor? I think it's very intentional what he says in verse 12. Don't read over this too quickly. He says, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. I think those two verses go together. I think if we will be faithful in prayer, if we will remember the hope that we have, then our zeal and our fervor will continue as they should. Okay, so the question we ask ourselves this morning is, am I on fire for God? Am I passionate about serving God? Does the kingdom of God, does the body of Christ really get me passionate? Am I on fire for serving the Lord? And if I'm not, if I can't honestly answer that and say, yes, I am passionate about serving God, then I think the first thing we need to examine is our prayer life. 
hearts. Are we being faithful in prayer? Are we constantly reminding ourselves of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ that the world cannot understand? Are we able to endure the afflictions of this world in a way that the world around us cannot understand? If I'm not passionate this morning, I need to start by re-examining my prayer life. All right, number three and finally, Paul says, share yourself. Notice verse 13. To share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. A recent survey found that over 60% of our population rarely or never has someone over for dinner. Okay? Um, it's becoming a fading thing in our culture to entertain each other at dinner parties. Right? And I recognize that the standards of hospitality are different now than they used to be. I know that many people are more likely to go out and eat with friends at a restaurant uh, than they are to have someone to their house. And that's fine. Uh, but what I really want us to do is look up from our phone every once in a while and have a conversation with a real person. Okay? I think the principle behind this verse and what we can apply to our day is do we regularly share ourselves with people around us? Okay, in the ancient world in which Paul lived in, uh, you didn't often stay at an inn. Okay, if you were traveling, you relied upon hospitality. I think the basic command Paul is giving is he's saying, when Christians are in your city to visit, be willing to host them in your house. A basic ancient hospitality. Okay, but I think that the only way that we can continue to move forward as a church, the only way that we can fully share our gifts for the kingdom, is if we are making a conscious choice to share our lives with each other. Okay, I'm real convinced that you cannot just use your gift fully in two hours on a Sunday. It's going to take more than that. The picture we get for what the church was like in the New Testament is it was a people who were devoted to each other, who shared their lives together, who were in this thing together. I think we need to be in each other's lives. You know, I love that we have supper clubs. I've gotten a lot out of that particular ministry, and I'm looking forward to when we start that up again. You know, I love the fellowship opportunities that we have here. We've got a ladies' retreat coming up that I know my wife's excited about. Uh, we have a Christmas party coming up that I'm very excited about. I love the connection groups that we do where we get to actually sit and talk and pray with each other. I love when we have potlucks. All right, if we are serious about growing as a church, we need to take advantage of the opportunities that we have to be in each other's lives. Okay, part of what it means to be family is that we have to share ourselves with each other. Right, we're going to continue this conversation next week. Uh, Paul continues to talk about how to be devoted to each other, how to have real relationships in the church, ultimately for the purpose of building up the body of Christ. Again, what we care about more than anything else is continuing to grow in our relationship to Jesus, continuing to grow as a church, continuing to be excited about the things of God. At this time in our service, we're going to sing a few verses of an invitation song. Uh, during the singing of the song, we as the church want to be here for you. Uh, during the song, I'll be down front. One of our shepherds will be down front. We would love to talk with you or pray with you about anything that's going on in your lives. Uh, before we do that, though, I'd like to close with a word of blessing over us. Let's pray. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. The Lord be gracious to you and give you peace.